Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Northwest Nazarene University, Pam uh, called it right. It's our university. Yeah. It's, it, uh, it belongs to us, and it shares a mission with us. And over the course of my time there, I got to serve as pastor in residence, which just meant that I got to be a pastor in a different residence. <laughs> like, I, like I am pastor here, I got to, to teach, I got to pray with people, I got to listen to people, and over the course of that time, I got acquainted with Jay Ackerman. And uh, pray for Jay. In his work at the university, he's preparing people to do what I do, to go and be pastors, preachers, people who can understand God's word, people who love God's word, and try to help other people understand and love God's word. Preaching uh, is, uh, we hope, not just a natural talent, but something that people study and learn, and learn to do well. And uh, a part of Jay's life is dedicated to helping young men and women learn how to preach well. We've been very blessed here over the last few months, haven't we, of having a number of guest speakers. And uh, among my favorites was one of our own young women, Kelsey Kennedy, who preached from this pulpit three weeks ago. In the summer, we had Hannah Christensen, another, another uh, Christian ministries major from, uh, from Treveca, come and preach. Those young women are learning at the feet of men like Jay Ackerman, who knows and loves the Lord, who has invited God's Holy Spirit to come and fill him and live that way daily, but especially for this sacred task. Would you welcome him the way we know how, please? Thank you, Chris. Well, good morning, and thank you so much. What a what a great uh, welcome! And I'm going to steal this over here. I preached uh, a couple summers ago in Ashland, Oregon. That's all that's for. So just stay there. But I, I preached I preached in Ashland, Oregon a couple summers ago. Their pastor was on sabbatical, and uh, I'd never seen this before in my life. But right in the pulpit, they had a a cup holder right in the pulpit. That was, and I didn't even discover until halfway through the sermon, I got distracted and it was kind of embarrassing, but it was very impressive. I've never seen one quite like it ever since, but a uh, good thing. Uh, it really is a pleasure for Kim and for me to be with you uh, today. I want to thank um, Cliff and Laura for their hospitality and, uh, man, oh man, what a, what a gracious and, and uh, welcoming congregation you have here. We're uh, thrilled to be with you. Made the drive up yesterday from Nampa. I think we drove in just about every kind of weather imaginable to get here. Um, but I tell you, some gorgeous country, and uh, we made it safe and sound. And we're looking forward to going back down the hill uh, later today, uh, the same way we came. I want to start by uh, just sharing with you uh, before I preach uh, just a little bit about NNU. Let me start by saying this: the mission of Northwest. Nazarene University is alive and well. In case you missed that, let me say it one more time. The mission of NNU is alive and well on our campus in these days. And as your pastor mentioned a moment ago, uh, we belong to you. Uh, There's a reason we're called Northwest Nazarene 
University. We belong to you. We belong to the Church of the Nazarene. We're partners in this ministry together. And I'm grateful for all of the ways in which this congregation across the years, and even up to this very day, has uh, demonstrated their ongoing support for our campus and for our students. Thank you for sending students our way. We, we need students. A university without students is not a real university. Over Christmas break, it doesn't feel like a university when we're between semesters. It's really good to have students back on campus this last week. So thank you for the students you send. Thank you for the students you've sent in the past. Let me also add, thank you for the faculty. I discovered this just this morning. Thank you for the faculty you've sent uh, from this church. I was talking with Joe. Uh, he met, met us at the door this morning, and uh, his daughter, Glenna Andrews, uh, has been a colleague of mine for many years, and um, somehow she got this wayward notion of leaving NNU and to go teach at George Fox, but we miss her deeply. But uh, what a great contribution Glenna has made on our campus across the years and a fine friend and a very gifted colleague. Also, Casey Christopher is uh, one of our music professors. My daughter played in his concert band for um, a couple of years and uh, just a very gifted musician, a man who loves God dearly. And I guess comes from Lewiston, and, and uh, I didn't realize that until this morning. So thank you for sending professors our way as well. Let me also add thank you for sending, uh, frankly, your money. <laughs> uh, we do, uh, we need it, just like you need to pay your bills, we need to pay our bills. But let me tell you the bills that we pay with your money. Uh, in case you didn't realize this before, your educational budgets, the money that you give uh, on, behalf, or on behalf of your congregation to NNU, did you know that 100%, 100% of those dollars goes to student scholarships? Um, and so on behalf of our students, thank you for your faithful giving and all the other ways that you generously um, support and pray for and volunteer on behalf of our university. Um, the mission of our university is alive and well. And uh, as recently as this past week, our first chapel back after the Christmas break uh, we literally had hundreds of students uh, lined at our altars as we began a new semester together with God. And so thank you for your prayerful support for all the ways that you make NNU uh, such a special place. We do deeply uh, appreciate it. Um, I want to uh, focus today on a passage of Scripture that my guess is for many of you is very, very familiar. In fact, you might not even need to open up your Bibles, you might argue, because you think you know the story so well. Uh, if you're a first-timer who's never been here before, let me just say you definitely want to come back on a different Sunday than this one because the preacher who's here week in and week out is a fine, fine pastor. And uh, don't judge everything just based on me today, please, whatever you do, okay? Come back again if this is your first time here. Maybe if this is your first time here, it's because you saw the sign out here out in front of the church and you were wondering, what on earth is this message about on Sunday morning? In praise of prodigal living. What on earth is that preacher thinking? This morning, I want us to explore the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel together. As I mentioned a moment ago, it's one of those passages that is really familiar to so many of us. My Bible is a, what's called a red-letter edition, which means the words of Jesus in the Gospels uh, are all in red and all the rest of the text in black. But when you get to Luke 15, almost every verse in Luke 15 is in red. 
There's only a couple right there at the beginning and one in the middle that's in black. In fact, if you look at about an eight-chapter swath, or four chapters on either side, maybe you might say, of Luke 15, you'll see it's almost all red. There's these little black patches, and then red, 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 and then a black patch, and then red, red, and then a black patch, and red, 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 red. And, uh, and so we're seeing in this part of the gospel according to Luke these kind of scenarios that Luke sets up for us. Someone will say something. Maybe it'll, be, maybe it'll be a Pharisee, a religious leader, or a scribe. Maybe it'll be a teacher of the law. Maybe it'll be some, you know, ne'er-do-well tax collector or sinner out there who says something. And so there'll be one or two little lines that sets up the scenario. And then there's all this text in red that is Jesus' response. That's really what's happening in Luke chapter 15. And I'd like to begin by reading the first section with you today. We're in Luke chapter 15 and starting with verse 1. This is the section in black. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now we shift to the red letter. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me! Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then a little tiny black patch. Then Jesus said, a little narration there, back to red letter. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. Let's stop right there. I want to talk with you this morning about the parable in Luke 15. And it really is one parable, not three. Now, you might look in your Bible and say, but in my Bible, there's a little header there that the publisher added later on that says, well, this is the story of the parable of the lost sheep, or this is the parable of the lost coin, and this is the parable of the prodigal son, or this is the parable of the lost son, or however the publisher inserted that into, uh, onto the page of, of uh, Luke 15. But I want to argue this morning, based on what Luke tells us, that we're not really looking at three parables here. We're really looking just at one, one parable. And it's a parable about, of all things, prodigal living. 
Now, some of you are scratching your heads right now because you're saying to yourself, what on earth is he talking about? How in the world could this be about prodigal living? After all, everybody knows that a prodigal is a bad thing, right? I mean, when we think about the parable of the prodigal son, we typically think about what? The parable of the, you fill in the blank. What kind of son? Wayward son. What else? Lost son. Rebellious. You see a pattern here? I mean, really what we're seeing, I think if you're going to really put it, boil it all down to the Cliff Notes version, we'd say, it's the parable of the bad son. This is, this is not really what, you guys down here in the front, this is not what your parents want for you, right? The parable of the prodigal son, being a prodigal, that's not a good thing. Well, my guess is somebody here has a cell phone, or I should be more accurate, Somebody here has a smartphone, right? I have a dumb phone. Mine doesn't do all the fancy things that my kids do. But uh, does anybody here have a smartphone? All right? You're honest. I mean, you're checking the scores. I understand how it works. I've been around the block. One of you who's got a smartphone, just look up the definition of the word prodigal for us for just a moment. Because you may be surprised to discover maybe there's another side of prodigal living that may catch you by surprise. Another side of prodigal living that ties in to this one parable we find in Luke 15. Anybody find it? Are you quick with your thumbs? Uh, Let's see. Let's go with the uh, adjective. Okay. Wastefully extravagant. Anybody have anything different than that? Want to add to the definition? All right, that'll do right there. Wasteful, extravagant, lavish, profuse. And we often think about it in terms of money, right? And certainly the young man in the passage, part of the story I haven't read yet in Luke 15, is a classic example of that because we read very quickly, he goes off on his own and kind of thumbs his nose at his dad and he, he, basically, he basically says to his father, Dad, if you don't mind, I'd just assume that you drop dead now. Can I just cash in and we can make this all easy on all of us? I mean, that's really what he's saying. Unheard of in ancient culture. And we see that he takes his wealth and he squanders it. It doesn't take very long. It's all just kind of like run like water through his fingers. So to be a prodigal is to be someone who's profuse, lavish. You might even say recklessly wasteful. How does that apply to this one parable in Luke 15? Some of you still haven't figured out how we have one parable here. Look with me at verse 3. The narrator says, Luke says in verse 3, so Jesus told them these parables, right? Is that what it says? No, it says, so Jesus told them this parable. We're talking about one parable in three acts. It's one big story with three different facets to it. Part of it has to do with a shepherd who loses a sheep. Part of it has to do with a woman who loses a coin. Part of it has to do with a father who has these two sons. It's one big parable in Luke 15. And it's a parable about 
prodigal, lavish, excessive, profuse living. If you don't believe me, let's take a look a little deeper. Verse 3, or verse 4. I love the way Jesus says this. Which of you, if you had a hundred sheep and you were in the wilderness and you lost one of them, wouldn't go and leave the 99 in the wilderness and go search for the one? I said before, we know this passage. If you've grown up in the church, we know this passage so well. Well, of course I would do that. Yes, of course I would do that. If I was out in the wilderness with a hundred sheep, of course. I'd be like that guy Jesus is talking about. I'd leave 99 sheep in the wilderness and I'd go search for that just stupid sheep who wandered away and got into trouble and I would go find that sheep and I would leave those 99 sheep in the wilderness. Let's be honest with ourselves, friends. Which one of us would do that? If you don't believe me, let's just change the story a little bit. Let me put it to you this way. Which one of you and I noticed, I thought of this yesterday as we were driving up through the Camas Prairie, wide open expanse of wilderness out there. Which one of you, if you had a hundred kindergartners, would leave the 99 in the wilderness and go search diligently for the one that you had lost? Right? None of us would do that. I don't know if you have any attorneys in your midst, but if you do, they call that gross negligence, right? I mean, just for the record, for the court, would you please repeat after me, you left 99 children in the wilderness to go search for one. Which one of us would do that? None of us. Not only that, but when I think about a sheep, I think of those fluffy little flannel graph lambs that are pristine and white and clean smelling, they, they smell like, you know, uh, baby shampoo, right? Not in Jesus' day. You got your phones out. Look up, how much does, a, how much does just a regular sh- everyday garden variety sheep weigh? I don't really know the answer to this, but we can find it out on Google here pretty quick. Uh, you know, a little lamb over my shoulders is no big deal. But I have a feeling that the kind of sheep that Jesus is talking about 2,000 years ago, weighed a little bit more than that. Anybody get the answer? Yes, sir, right here. Whoa, did you hear that? 99 to 350 pounds. Strap that baby on your shoulders and hike back to celebrate with your friends. You're talking about a dirty, smelly, dumb sheep that made you risk everything to go find and heavy on your shoulders to lug back to the group. Which one of us would do that? Not as many as we often think. Who would do something like that? I think there's only one answer. A prodigal would. Let's read on. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp and sweep the house diligently and search until she finds it? Now, this makes perfect sense to us. You can go do all kinds of fascinating research about, you know, well, how much, what was the value of that coin that was lost? And, and you know, what well, we don't know exactly. Most, most scholars believe it probably was the equivalent of like, you know, one day's wages. 
And of course, you know, in this room, I'm guessing one day's wages would vary quite a bit from person to person. So let's just say for the sake of argument here, let's just say instead of losing one silver coin, that she loses a $100 bill. How's that? I mean, for some of you, that'd be, you know, more than a day's wages. For others of you, you'd say, you know, well, that's not going to get me by. But, you know, we'll just, for an average here, we'll say she has $1,000 bills and she loses one of them. Now, let me ask you, if you lost a $100 bill, would you search diligently until you find it? Yeah, I would do this. I would search diligently for much smaller denominations of bills and coins than that, right? I mean, this is a no-brainer. Of course, we would all do that. That doesn't sound all that reckless or wasteful or extravagant or lavish. But in the ancient Near East, the... The rhetorical impact of what Jesus is saying here is the latter half of this story. Because like the shepherd who loses the sheep, the woman searches diligently like you would, like I do, but then she does something that the rest of us never would really do. She finds her $100 bill, and in essence, Jesus says, which one of you, if you lost a $100 bill, would search diligently until you find it? And then when you find it, you call together all of your friends and you throw a $1,000 party. I mean, that's really what Jesus is saying. Now all of a sudden, the tables have turned, haven't they? Who would throw a $1,000 party for a lost $100 bill? I mean, you lose 100 you spend 1000 That just doesn't make any sense. What kind of a person would do something like that? Who would be so profuse, so lavish, you might even argue recklessly wasteful? I'll tell you who would. A prodigal does. Act 3. A man has two sons. The younger of the two goes to dad and says, as I mentioned a moment ago, Dad, I wish you'd just drop dead. I'd like to cash in now. And crazily enough, The dad says, here's your check, boy. Would you do that? A prodigal does. A few days later, he leaves. And like we see often in the Bible, people wander off, they get into trouble, and before you know it, their famine is in the land. This happens all through the Old Testament. Jesus kind of resuscitates this little device in his story. And now, he's in need. Who's Jesus talking to, by the way, in this parable? Back at verse 1. He's talking to the religious folks, isn't he? They're grumbling about, this Jesus is spending too much time with the wrong kind of people. Really what Jesus is doing is, Jesus here is talking, if you grow up in Nazarene circles, Jesus is talking to the district advisory board, right? Or, or I'll point the fingers at myself. Jesus is talking to the faculty of the School of Theology and Christian Ministries at Northwest Nazarene University. He's talking to the religious folks, the people who know the rules, the, the people who understand all the dynamics, it seems, and yet they get it wrong. So, 
how do you think these people responded when Jesus talked about just how low this kid got? Famine comes into the land. The boy spends all of his money. It just is like water through his fingers. And now he's so desperate that he says, you know, I'm going to hire myself out to that pig farmer over there. Good Jewish boy. Working for a pig farmer. And then Jesus, being the master storyteller that he is, he just kind of like, you know, pokes at him a little deeper. And he says, he would love to have eaten the pods that the pigs were eating. Jesus is saying, pig slop looked good to him. But nobody gave him anything. So let's pick up the story. Verse 17. When he came to himself, when the boy came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up. I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, Jesus says. If you're the kind of person who underlines things in their Bible, those are good words to underline. While he was still far off, his father saw him and had compassion for him. I appreciate your pastor's prayer this morning about God's grace that goes before us. Even before we had an inkling of an idea about what we really needed in terms of a relationship with God. God was already reaching out to us, beckoning us, bridging the gap, knocking on the door of our hearts over and over again in large ways and in small when we can't sleep at night saying, but what about me? But what about this life you've chosen and the direction of destruction that you're on? I have something different for you. And I could stop right now and have lots of people here stand and talk about how did God's grace encounter you before you even really realized it. And any of you, we talk a lot about this. It's called, in in Wesleyan circles, and that's kind of the theological branch of the tree that that the Church of the Nazarene is, is grafted to. We call that prevenient grace. Maybe a new word for you. Maybe not. It basically just means the grace of God that goes before. The grace of God that precedes us. But here's the great part. Prevenient grace keeps going. It's not just the grace of God before we bump our head on the altar and say, Lord, I want you to live in my heart. But it's the grace of God that continues to go ahead of us, friends. Every day of our lives, for the rest of our lives, God's prevenient grace, like a headlight in front of us, is leading the way, is guiding us, is beckoning us, is whispering when we don't know what to do or where to turn. And that prevenient grace, that grace that goes before us, that voice that we hear is the voice of the Father who, while he was still far off, his Father saw him and had compassion for him. And pick up the story again. He ran, and he put his arms around him, and he kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Does that sound familiar? That's the very thing that he said he would do when he was back at the pig pen. In other words, he kept his promise. He confessed. He sought reconciliation. Now, in the ancient world, guess what? In Jesus' day, guess what? When a son dishonored a father, the son wasn't just dishonoring the father, he was also dishonoring the whole family, and he was really dishonoring the whole community. But in this third act of this parable found in Luke 15, do you notice who runs to who? It's the father who runs to the son. Now, if I could concoct this story, I would envision it's the son crawling to the father, right? But instead, it's the father running to the son. Now, in our culture, not a lot of old men run. In the ancient Near East, old men never ran because they're people of authority. People run to them. They don't run to others. It tells something about the profuse, lavish love of prodigal living. Now, some believe maybe the father was running because, as I said, this younger son, he, he really defiled the whole community. And maybe the father saw him and said, i got to get to him before the neighbors do because in a shame and honor-based culture, it was within the rights of the people in the community to slay the son because he dishonored everybody. Rather than, here he comes again, he's going to dishonor his father again, we'll take care of this. He's gone. But maybe the father ran to save his son from the neighbors. What we do know is, the father ran. And he not only ran to him, he was filled with compassion. And he put his arms around him and he kissed him. And then the son said to the father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then verse 22, but the father, the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Um, now we get to the stickiest part of this whole parable. Because most of us here, if we're really honest with ourselves, oh, I hope all of us here, if we're really honest with ourselves, would say, yeah, I've, I've been that sheep who wandered away. That stupid sheep who got into the thicket. And, and I was found. Or maybe we could say, yeah, I was that silver coin or that $100 bill or whatever amount of money you want to ascribe to it. I was lost and God found me and brought me back in. And God, believe it or not, celebrates about being in relationship with, with me, of all people. 
Some of us can tell some real true life stories, I imagine, in this place about how we've been that younger son and we've squandered chapters of our life that we wish we could redo and now we have to just commit them to the grace of God to forgive and to inspire us to live in new ways. Then there are some others of us here who find ourselves at the end of the chapter. Now the elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. Did you notice a pattern here? The father comes again, this time to the older son. He began to plead with him, but the older son answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice how he doesn't say, notice when he doesn't say when this brother of mine comes home. Instead, he says, when this son of yours came back, this son who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Some of us have to wait till the end of the parable before we really can find ourselves in the story. I have one brother, he's younger than me. I'm an automatic older son, older brother. I can identify with this guy. It doesn't seem quite fair that this 'er ne'er-do-well brother of mine can mess everything up and hurt all of us, and then he comes back. I imagine here there's some other older brothers and sisters who can identify with that. Maybe you've experienced it firsthand in your own household. The father says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. So we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead. He's come to life. He was lost and has been found. Who would do a thing like that? Who could be so crazy, reckless, extravagant, lavish, so profuse that when you look at it, you say, you know, that really is reckless. There's only one answer, friends. Prodigals do it. There's there's something about parables in the New Testament that makes them different from other parts of the Bible. They have some distinctive features within them. A couple of those features fall in these categories. The first one is that when Jesus tells a parable, almost always, when you carry it out to the ultimate conclusion, it kind of defies logic. Jesus uses these parables that when you press them to the nth degree, you say, Yeah, I'm not sure I really can do that. 
The other thing about a parable that is unique to them is that they often leave us hanging. They often leave, leave us saying, you know, when I get to heaven, I want to ask God about this because it's never made any sense to me. Why didn't Jesus finish the story after all and tell us? What did the older brother do? He leaves us wondering. Why do you think he did? I think because Jesus understood that we really are all older brothers. And that's an ending that each of us has to decide for ourselves. You have to decide. Will you welcome in this prodigal? Not only welcome him in, but recognize him as your brother. There's something about parables that underscore what we read in Isaiah 55. God's ways are not our ways. Truth is, I wouldn't leave 99 sheep in the wilderness to go find one if I'm left to my devices. I wouldn't spend $1,000 on a party to celebrate that I found a $100 bill. I'd struggle about a brother who banked it all and then squandered it all and then came back for more. I'm guessing you would too. A year or so ago, um, I was invited to speak at a pastor's retreat in Pennsylvania. And uh, the district superintendent there um, uh, graduated, uh, earned his Master of Divinity uh, at NNU through our online program. He was a student of mine and uh, has become a good friend to me. So he invited me to come out and speak to his pastors. Kim got to go with me, and we flew out to Pittsburgh and, and uh, spent several days uh, with them in um, what they call the mountains in Pennsylvania. Uh, out here in the West, we know what mountains really look like, but, you know, they... They, they believe those are mountains, so uh, we went. It was a beautiful country and wonderful people. And uh, we were at dinner uh, with some pastors uh, one night, and um, we were talking about, you know, we'd never been to Pennsylvania before and so forth, and Falling Water, that Frank Lloyd Wright house was not very far from where the retreat was, and Kim got to go over and, and see that while we were there. So I was asking about, you know, the Amish and the Mennonites, and that's kind of Amish country back there in Pennsylvania, and, and I never really lived around anything like that. So I was asking some of the pastors who, um, at the table who lived closer to uh, some of that community. Uh, one pastor um, used to serve in, in Lancaster County, uh, Pennsylvania, which is like, you know, ground zero for Amish world, I guess, or something like that. And um, he told a story that has helped me to really understand this parable even better. Um, the Amish have this thing called rumspringa. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. In German, it just means running around. It's like when an Amish kid turns 16 through the rite of growing up, um, uh, some kids choose to go out and kind of sow their wild oats before they kind of decide for themselves as good Anabaptists that they're going to join the church and get baptized and they're going to live out this Amish life. 
And so some, some kids run around and do all kinds of things that, you know, we wouldn't want our kids doing. And some of them run so far away that they end up looking a lot like this younger son in Luke 15, and they get involved in all kinds of things that really break their parents' hearts. But at dinner that night, talking with these pastors, one of them told me this story, that the custom in Amish homes, Mennonite homes, when a kid um, not only leaves home, but leaves the community, leaves the faith, chooses another path. The tradition is that in those households that, and it's very traditional family unit, working father, mom is, takes care of the domestic responsibilities for the most part. Every meal, three squares a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The parents set a place at the table for the kid who's gone. That every morning when they get up to, before they go milk the cows and the sun has even come up and there's pancakes on the table and bacon, as they gather around that table, there's a place set for that kid who's not there. Talk about a reminder. Every single day about those folks out there and how much we want them back. But here's the other part. That kid wandering in the wilderness, wherever he or she may be, when they come to themselves, they know right now they're sitting at the table and there's a plate with my name on it. There's food on that table and all they have to do is come back and I can sit down and I can enter back into that community. Friends, That's lavish. That's profuse. That's prodigal. I don't know your stories. I don't know where you come from. I don't know what you're going to do after this today. Some of you maybe can identify with that older son because you know how much you've been hurt by the younger son. And in essence, you came to the table three squares a day and you've been hurt and wounded by that one who left. And anger is the only feeling you have because you don't know how to deal with it. I'm glad for a father who says, we have to celebrate. He was dead and he's alive again. Friends, we serve a prodigal God in the very best sense of that word. We serve a God whose mercy and grace is so profuse, who, who lavishes upon us grace we can never, ever deserve, who runs and meets us more than halfway, that when we turn and, and by our feeble attempts at confession, 
we find a father who almost doesn't even waste the time of the confession because he's so busy saying, quick, get a robe, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. My son was dead and is alive again. We serve the prodigal God of love. And so as we close today, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray together. Lord, in the face of such a powerful, terrible, as we consider these facets, Jesus, that you offer us into the character and the mercy of this God of love. Lord, we bow humbly recognizing we've been the lost coin, the lost sheep. We've been the lost son. Lord, we've been the older son. And the one constant is you, Lord. You're the one who risks everything to find us in the wilderness. You're the one who celebrates so lavishly when sinners like us come home. You're the one who's scanning the horizon waiting for us to return. And when you see us, you meet us far more than halfway. And you're the one who helps those of us who struggle and who are guilty of comparison. Sometimes we get so bad that we can't even see our brother as a brother anymore. And yet you still come out and you call us to celebrate. Lord, maybe today there's some people here who for weeks or months or maybe even years have basically been setting a table three squares a day knowing that there's an empty seat because a son or a daughter has chosen a different path. I pray for those people today. I pray, Lord, for their kids or their grandkids or their great-grandkids that they're grieving over. Lord, we commit them to you again. We pray, Lord, for your mercy to reach out before they can even begin to imagine it or recognize it. Help us, Lord, to be discerning about how we can encourage people back to the table. When we're guilty of grumbling, when we're guilty about worrying about those things that keep us from your center, remind us again, Lord, of your lavish love. Have your way in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to close today, and I don't know, Pastor, if there's anything else needs to be attended to. Okay. I'd like to close today uh, by inviting you to stand and hear these words um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
you've been to a wedding, you probably heard 1 Corinthians 13 about love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. This is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, right, comes right after the heels of chapter 13. And it's from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase called The Message. And uh, I think it speaks well to this day and our response to this parable in our lives. 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Let's make this our prayer for this day and every day God gives us. Go after a life of love as if your life depended on it. Because it does. God bless you. Make it a great week.